grew up in a middle-class home in, in Appalachia, which, if you know Appalachia, middle-class puts you at the upper echelons of Appalachian society near the intersection of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia. And uh, he had a fundamentalist Christian mom saved and on her way to heaven and an irreligious dad who didn't really believe in all that because religious people are all hypocrites. And uh, in the early 1960s, my dad left Appalachia to go be an undergraduate student at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And somewhere along the way, he sort of concluded that the universe is all there has ever been, all there is, and all there shall ever be. And if you're looking for someone upstairs, you're probably wasting your time. Thirty years later, his son, raised in an unchurched, secular household in suburban D.C., uh, leaves his secular home to go to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and Somewhere along the way, gets saved, becomes a Christian, and goes to seminary to become a pastor, and then goes and gets a PhD in theology. Uh, Universities are weird places. Uh, They're places where you encounter all sorts of new experiences and new ideas and new kinds of people where your assumptions are called into question, where your entire worldview, your entire narrative of history can change and change radically. Academia is a unique place in that people are transformed in a context in which everybody's discussing new ideas. Some Christians are afraid of the university. Um, For many of us in that room, that seems weird because some of you have spent your entire lives in higher education. You can spit out the window. The stained glass windows don't really open, but out of a different window in the church on a windy day, and it will land at any of several schools. Uh, We're going to look today at an account in which the gospel of Jesus was first brought by those early followers of Jesus into an academic setting and presented to people who were discussing all sorts of new ideas. There were no modern universities in the ancient world. There were rhetorical schools where you might learn to make an argument and put down your opponent while you're doing it. But, uh, but there was Athens And Roman Athens, this isn't the classical period, this is later antiquity. Roman Athens was still very much the place where one went to discuss ideas. All the various leaders of all the various schools of philosophy had their people, their leaders, their brightest minds there, and it was there on the Areopagus, what the Romans called Mars Hill, that many of them would meet to discuss. Uh, the Areopagus had originally been sort of the supreme court of the city-state of Athens, but by late antiquity it become more than that, where ideas were discussed, where blasphemy was questioned, where ideas were investigated. Uh, it was a place where the best minds of the ancient world would gather in this noble body. And it's to this body that the Apostle Paul is invited. He first goes to the marketplace, the Agora in Athens, and uh, begins reasoning with people there as well as in the synagogues. And while he is in the marketplace, he is grabbed and asked, hey, would you come talk to the Areopagus? They're going to want to hear what you're having to say. What you're saying is really different. This is really new. Certainly, Paul knew how to speak. I mean, Paul had been trained by Gamaliel, who was the the greatest uh, Jewish 
educator in, in antiquity. He was the grandson of the Rabbi Hillel. He was the head the, the, of, of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, trained by Gamaliel, Paul had the best Jewish education in the first century. And so Paul knew how to speak, but the content of what he was saying was so radically new for the audience he was about to address. We're going to look at Romans chapter 17. Paul in Athens, beginning in verse 16, we're going to look through verse 34. This is the historical account of the earliest followers of Jesus bringing that message of the gospel to the ancient world. While Paul was waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those uh, who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, And he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him And perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, "We, we want to hear you. We want to hear you again on this subject. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. 
Why waste your time trying to reach intellectuals? Notice how the Athenians are described here. They're people who love nothing more than to sit around and talk about new ideas all night, all day. That's what they were known for. And it's a pretty accurate description. It's not sneering at them, but a lot of Christian uh, uh, commentators will, will jump on this passage and the fact that only a handful of people are said to have responded uh, to the message and only one member of, of, of the Areopagus was ready right away to become a Christian. And they contrast this with the response in some other towns and they say that St. Paul the Apostle was wasting his time Casting his pearls to swine. Intellectuals don't need God. They don't care about God. You're wasting, them their time. You're wasting your time trying to bring the gospel to an academic or intellectual setting. I think they say this in part because there is a very strong anti-intellectual strain in American religion, not just Christianity, indeed in American culture. Anti-intellectualism is that hostility to and mistrust of the intellect, of intellectuals, a mistrust of intellectualism commonly expressed as a, a depreciation of education and of philosophy and the dismissal of art and literature and science as impractical and even contemptible human pursuits. In some circles, there is a hostility or contempt for book learning or hostility to science. And yet, Uh, What did Jesus teach that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind? St. Paul in Romans 12 says that the great transformation spiritually that happens in the Christian happens through the renewal of our minds, our inner being, and particularly focused on our intellect and our mental categories and our understanding of ourselves and God and the universe and their interrelatedness and relative value. Paul does say that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And so you will always find more Christians called by God out of poverty and sickness and shame and scorn than you will among the mighty and the powerful and the respected and the influential. And yet he never uses this as a call to abandon the life of the mind or to abandon academia. Indeed, Paul makes it a point. He jumps at the opportunity when he's invited to speak to the Areopagus itself. He jumps at the opportunity. He envisions the gospel at work in academia. Why is that? It's because Paul believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ has what it takes to challenge the dominant beliefs of any culture. He's not sitting there cowering before the might and power of Greek stoicism. He's not trembling at the thought of facing a group of Epicureans. For Paul, the message about Jesus is not just a private matter about being personally forgiven and personally privately reconciled to God. The gospel isn't a private thing for him about my personal peace and comfort. The gospel belongs in the public square. He takes it first to the, certainly first to the synagogue and then to the marketplace. And then from the marketplace, when invited, he takes it into the very halls of intellectual power and influence because he believes the gospel can hold its own against any human thought system. You know, every human culture has its dominant beliefs, uh, its dominant ways of thinking, and Paul is convinced that this message of salvation in Jesus answers the most primal longings of the human heart and the, the deepest longings and aspirations of first century Greek culture and of every other culture. 
Uh, so Paul is not wasting his time by communicating the gospel to intellectuals. He believes it has what it takes uh, to challenge the dominant beliefs of any culture. So he jumps at the opportunity to speak to the Areopagus. And, and that's also partly because uh, he believes that intellectual elites are very precious to God. You know, the way I sometimes hear uh, people in certain circles talk about academics and people in higher education, uh, it strikes me how easy it is to com- have just no idea what another person's experience is like if you haven't actually walked in their shoes. Uh, it was Roman Catholic theologian uh, George Vigel who said, we are not congealed stardust, an accidental byproduct of cosmic chemistry. We are not just something, we are someone. And Paul is not viewing these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as religious opponents or culture, uh, cultural enemies. He's viewing them as human beings, creating God's image, each one of them experiencing the pain and the brokenness and the shame and the hardship of life in a fallen world that's not as God originally intended. He views them just like the way he views all of the rest of us. Uh, you know, when you when you walk by Washington University, for example, and you see all these impressive building projects, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars being, being dropped in order to present a facade that is imposing and says, we, are, we have got it together, we have the life of the mind, we understand our intellectual categories, we're at the forefront of American and global research universities. It's, it's easy to fall for that. And to not realize that every one of those buildings is filled to the brim with human beings who are just like us. They are made in God's image. And they are experiencing the brokenness of the fall. And they're asking questions. And many of them are questioning what it is that they really believe. And whether there really is purpose in this life. And whether there really is goodness or hope. You see, the world in which I live is a world that's falling apart before our eyes. And as followers of Jesus, you are God's only representatives on this planet, and you simply can't take the time to pick and choose who you think needs the help of Christ. They all do. They all need love and forgiveness, and everyone needs to be rescued from the horror of an eternity apart from God. Intellectual elites are precious to God. C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, he says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these two destinations. And it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, and all politics. There are no ordinary people, he writes. You have never talked to a mere Mortal friends, academics, students, professors, scholars, researchers, people on a different end of the political or cultural playing field from you, whoever or wherever they are, none of them are mere mortals. The gospel is needed in academia because Jesus Christ loves academics. 
God calls us to academia with the gospel of Jesus. First main point. Second main point. But notice Paul's manner. Paul loves these people. The gospel is, has what it takes to answer their longings, but, but Paul doesn't stand in the marketplace and preach at them. He's not truthing them with a whole lot of propositions. No, while, while in the synagogue very often Paul will preach, in the marketplace he reasons. And that's what we see here. The terminology that you, Luke uh, uses to describe Paul's approaches is Socratic terminology when it says he's reasoning with them in the marketplace. That means Paul is not on a soapbox here. Uh, to engage in Socratic reasoning with someone means that you're asking questions of them in order to understand their perspective and find out their premises. It means that, that Paul is listening very carefully so as to help them along in identifying where their premises might be breaking down. This is not a debate. When I see a whole lot of Christian apologetic stuff on, on YouTube, uh, may it never be, you know, the debate format is so sterile. And you've got one Christian speaker getting up and giving his, his talking points, and then the atheist gets up and gives his talking points, and then the Christian responds to the atheist's talking points, and the atheist responds to the Christian's talking points, and, and, and it all feels so canned and so disingenuous. Paul wasn't debating. He was reasoning. Uh, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, to reason means to really get into the other person's point of view. Holly Rabena reflected on the 2008 movie Ridiculous. Um, you know, if you saw it, Ridiculous is a film that was billed at the time as the number one sacrilegious comedy in America. It was supposedly a documentary in which comedian Bill Maher travels the world asking religious practitioners questions about their faith. And though Maher makes fun of every world religion as well as some of the minor ones, about two-thirds of his critique is focused on Christianity. And at the beginning of the film, Maher says he's on a spiritual journey. Uh, but instead of interviewing, like, well-known Christian pastors and theologians and academics, Maher instead uh, poses complicated theological and philosophical questions to truck drivers, a bookstore owner, and an actor who plays Jesus in the Holy Land experience in Orlando theme park. L.A. Times movie critic Kenneth Turan said Maher's, quote, reliance on skewering people who are no match for him in glibness, persuasiveness, or even intelligence leaves a sour taste. Maher explains there is nothing more ridiculous than the ancient mythological stories that live on as today's religions. Uh, still, Robena says, I, I hoped there might be a few moments in the movie where Maher got sincere about seeking. And she says, I focused on how I might answer his questions. This was an exercise in futility, she adds. I could barely string together two thoughts before Maher changed the subject. And I soon realized it wouldn't matter if Maher was interviewing the most brilliant Christian debater on the planet. He wasn't interested in contemplating faith, just in mocking religion. Richard Corliss of Time magazine said, Maher seems interested less in conversation than in confrontation. And so his movie is less essay than Inquisition. And I wonder, do Christians do the same thing? Are Christians engaging in conversations about ultimate things in order to hear 
in order to dialogue, in order to understand, in order to help lead others along in, in, in understanding, even questioning their assumptions, or are we just there to mock another person's faith or lack of it? What would it look like for you to engage, as Paul does, reasoning in the public sphere? What would it look like for you to to engage and really ask questions and try to understand and help others along, always with the utmost respect for them and respect for their views, no matter how wrong. Uh, You know, uh, Americans have lost that art in almost every sphere, and you as followers of Jesus are the ones who have to recover it in, in, in academia, in political discourse, in cultural debate. Uh, no one knows how to engage in dialogue or conversation anymore. We only have our talking points and our insults, and it's against Christ himself. And Paul gives us here a different way, a different approach, because he loves these academics. Yet we see something more here in Paul's approach. We see an appeal to that knowledge of God that even the pagan philosopher already has. He mentions how the Athenians, in his discussion, he mentions how they have all of these idols, all of these temples to all of these gods, and with all of these dozens of temples to dozens of different deities, he found one altar that had the inscription to an unknown god. The agnostic theos, the one we do not know. Now, why would they do this? Who would build such a thing out We don't really know for certain. It may very well have just been that the Athenians were doing due diligence. They had all of these gods, and they had temples to all of them, but they didn't know everything, and so maybe they're thinking, gosh, what if we missed one? What if there's someone up there who's feeling slighted and is going to get really angry with us? We better cover our bases. And yet yet Paul seizes upon this to say, no, actually, you realize there is something more to this. There's something more than these gods that you worship. Uh, there's, there's a God that you know is there, but you don't know him. His existence keeps coming up as that missing piece that makes sense of life. He says, you believe in all these gods, but none of these Greek gods can explain where we came from. None of them can, can explain how we're significant or what the universe is for or what happens to us when we die. These Greek gods are just like us. They're fickle. They're shallow. They're emotionally needy and immature. They're in bad relationships. They didn't make the cosmos. You know that. You know there's more to life than these gods which you have in all of these temples. You even have a temple to an unknown god because you know that there's something more. And so Paul begins quoting their own Greek authors. First he quotes from from Epimenides of Crete. In him we live and move and have our being. And then he quotes from Aratus of, of Cilicia. For we are all his offspring. Paul had immersed himself in the literature of Greece, not just to refute it or to make an argument as to why it's insufficient, but to affirm everything he could and to see within their culture their own longing for God and how that longing manifested itself as a longing for a God that they do not yet know. Throughout his writings, he's, he's always quoting from pagan literature. Paul quotes from Epimenides in Titus 1.12. He quotes from Menander, the author of the Greek comedy Theus in 1 Corinthians 15.33. He's saying, I hear your sense that there's something more. And I hear that longing in a lot of your literature. So now let's, let's talk about that. 
you know, over the coming centuries, the gospel would, would sweep through Greek, the Greek Hellenistic world and, and supplant many of the dominant ideas of, of the culture. Now, why is that? Third point. It's because the gospel provides a hope. It provides a hope that no human culture can provide. First of all, the gospel gives us a God who is actually worthy of worship. You know, you think about Greek worship. You think about these Greek gods. No one worshipped these Greek gods in the sense that Christians understand worship. You know, they were useful. They were functional. They helped you secure blessings for the things that you really wanted in life. If you, for example, had to uh, uh, sail a boat, you had to take a trip from, from, from Athens across the Mediterranean to, to Alexandria, you might offer an offering in the temple of Poseidon in order to pay off Poseidon so that he would give you a safe journey. But nobody delighted in Poseidon. Nobody longed for intimacy with Poseidon. Nobody worshipped Poseidon from the heart. Nobody wanted, even Poseidon's own priests didn't want to get close to Poseidon. Are you crazy? Nobody hungered for Poseidon because he was never a beauty great enough to captivate anybody's heart in its own right. It was such a pluralistic society. Uh, very much like our own, religiously and culturally pluralistic with all of these different gods and all of these different views and all of these different value systems. And it's in the context of all of these different gods, all of them so small and shallow and human. It's into this context that Paul explains what the biblical God is actually like. And here, in the God of Christianity, in the God of the Bible, he says we see something that is totally different from all of your little gods. We see here a God that is big enough to worship. Uh, you know, you look at the, the text and he talks about, you know, the sovereignty of God, that God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. This is a, a God who created the entire cosmos. This isn't just somebody up on top of Mount Olympus throwing down thunderbolts. He says this God doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by men because he is self-sufficient. This God is eternal and infinite, and he got along fine without you before he made you, and he could get along fine without you now. He is that vast and that massive and that in control. He says he gives all men life and breath and everything else. He created all the peoples of the earth. He's not a tribal deity for just one group. He did this so people would see seek him. In him we live and move and have our being. He says that this God determined the exact time and places that everybody should live. That's sounding like Jesus when Jesus talks about the sovereignty of God as one who is in absolute control over even the tiniest Adam. Jesus who says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus who said, a bird can't fall to the ground without the will of your Father in heaven. A God who is at once infinite and uncontrollable, who works all things together to fulfill his purpose. A God who is huge, who raises up leaders and brings them down. A God who is infinite and terrifying, and you cannot control him, and he is mysterious, and you will never wrap your mind around him. You see, the Greeks understood their gods. And if your God is small enough to be understood, 
then that God will never inspire you to worship with all your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. That God is too small and that God will never captivate your heart. That God will never compel you to live for him. Paul is saying that this unknown God is the one for whom we were made. This God of the Bible is the one who makes sense of so many of these things that we've been working around all of these years. I mean, For me personally, when I see how big and infinite and unable to control is the God of Christianity, how terrifying, who fuels stars, vast, immense, and scary, and yet also good, I look at that and I think, well, obviously, that's got to be the real one, because that's the one that no one in their right mind would ever actually create. We'd want something we could control. This message about the infinite God really lines up with our humanity. That's what Paul is banking on. He's not quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Greek literature. These people don't know anything of the God of Christianity or the God of the Bible or the historical, redemptive historical narrative from, from, from you know, Adam to the new earth. He's quoting their own literature and banking on the fact that the Athenians were made in God's image whether they realized it or not and that that void is still there. And when we're most aware of our humanity, that's when we're most attuned to the reality of God. Remember years back, a friend of mine, Jack, he had been raised in a Christian background and turned atheist. And I remember the shame that he felt as he described to me how one day he had been taking a shower and he felt a lump in a place where a man never, ever wants to feel a lump. And he understood that testicular cancer is a death sentence very often for young men. And he panicked, and he said at that moment he began crying out to God and begging God, confessing his sins and asking forgiveness and saying, I believe in you, please forgive me, forgive me. When he later found out that he'd be fine, it wasn't cancer. He looked back up and he said, you know, Greg, it was really just a moment of weakness. I didn't believe I was just afraid. And I, I questioned him about that. I pushed back on that. I said, you know, Jack, it seems to me that at the moment when you were most aware of your humanity, when you were the most aware that this life is a vapor, when you lost your illusion of invincibility and you lost the illusion that you were actually in control, when you were your most human, you knew that God was there. It says so much about what's actually real. When facing reality, we, we default to a belief in God. Jack's prayer was his temple to an unknown God. You know, prayer is one of the most common phenomena in human life. Even deliberately non-religious people pray at times. Studies have shown that in secularized countries like our own, prayer continues to be practiced not only by those who have a religious preference, but even by many of those who do not believe in God. 2004 study found that 30% of atheists admitted they prayed at times. 17% of non-believers in God actually pray regularly. The frequency of prayer increases with age, even among those who never return to church or identify with an institutional religion. Italian scholar Giuseppe Jordan summarized it this way. He said, In virtually all studies of the sociology of religious behavior, it is clearly apparent that a very high percentage of people declare they pray every day, and many say many times a day. Tim Keller asked, so does this mean that everybody prays? No, it does not. 
Many atheists are rightly offended by the saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. There are many people who do not pray even in times of extreme danger. Still, though, prayer is a global reality inhabiting all cultures and involving the overwhelming majority of people at some point in their lives. Efforts to find cultures, even very remote and isolated ones, without some form of religion and prayer, have failed. There has always been some form of attempt to communicate between the human and divine realms. There seems to be a human instinct for prayer, as Swiss theologian Karl Barth said, it is our incurable God sickness. Christianity provides a hope that no human culture can offer. How? Well, it it gives us a God who is actually worthy of worship. He is big enough and scary enough and good enough to worship. Christianity, secondly, lines up with our humanity. There is, within our very souls, a temple to an unknown God. It's, it's an insatiable longing of the human heart. And yet, lastly, Christianity gives us a hope in the face of suffering and death. That's why Paul goes on to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that we will all rise from death one day. This is the good news. It's that the infinite personal God of love has gone to battle against death itself and defeated death. And Paul zeroes in on the the physicality of this Christian hope, a a message that many of his hearers, they weren't able to hear because in in first century Greek context, Platonism and Platonic and Neoplatonic ideas had, had had a huge impact and people tended to view that the physical world was something evil and something to which one one wanted to escape. The, the, this was the physical world of, of, of shadows, not the reality of, of the perfect idea. And, and so when Paul starts talking to them about, about the physicality of God's salvation, about how God, as we celebrate this time of year, became flesh and united his divine essence, his divine nature to human nature in order to redeem and bring human nature back into community with God. When he talked about the physical death of Christ and his resurrection and ascension, meaning the incarnation of Christ is permanent, and he's permanently united to humanity at the right hand of the Father, that was more than they could hear, most of them. And yet in the coming centuries, in late antiquity, as plague after plague would sweep through the Roman world, as Roman cities became more and more crowded, cesspools of viruses and bacteria and funguses spreading from person to person, as the average lifespan went from the 40s to the 30s to the 20s to the teens, as there was more and more death, as you buried more children, as you buried your parents, as, as brides went to the funeral of the husband they had just married, as the world became a world of pain and sickness and suffering and death. Stoicism did not offer much hope. You've got to be strong. Be a noble Roman. Suck it up and face it like a man. And Epicureanism, with its longing for pleasure in the easy life, didn't offer much hope. But Christianity did. The message of Jesus offered a hope that their culture and their philosophies and their religions were never able to offer. In Jesus, they saw a God great enough to hold the future in his hands and to bend that future toward his purposes. In Jesus, they saw a God who was good enough to have compassion on those of us who have failed him. In Jesus, they saw a God who was willing to unite his nature forever to our human nature, becoming one of us, with us, dying for us and rising 
for us to destroy death itself and set free all of us who all our lives had lived in fear of death. Even on the gospel's first hearing in Athens, some intellectuals, even a member of the Areopagus, saw the beauty of the Christian God and their hearts were captivated by the love of Jesus. And over the coming centuries, the culture itself would shift its dominant beliefs to become dominant belief in Jesus, our Savior, God, who became flesh. Jesus is always working to call people to himself. He calls students to himself. He calls faculty to himself. He calls people on campus to pray and to welcome, to support. He's calling his people into the life of the mind as academics themselves. Jesus is always at work, and there are more Christians in higher education today than at any time in recorded history. Jesus is the one thing that no human religion can ever give. The slain Russian Orthodox priest Alexander Men who in books and culture was cited, he said, I believe that everything that is of value in Christianity is valuable only because it belongs to Christ. If it does not belong to Christ, it belongs in the same degree to Islam or to Buddhism. So every religion is an attempt to reach God, but Jesus Christ is the only answer. With Jesus, death has no power over us because God has become flesh, and that flesh will rise with life. In God, Jesus provides a hope that no human culture can offer. When I arrived at the University of Virginia in August of 1990, I had already been questioning my own faith. I was raised in a home in which we had no church, we had no religious background, uh, our default, I remember in ninth grade, a guy named Spencer Brose said, oh, well, Greg, that's because you're an atheist. And I, I didn't want to name, take the label. I didn't know whether to wear it as a badge of honor or to say, well, I'm not sure that I am. But I remember my junior year of high school wrestling with the reality of, of justice and injustice. I saw suffering. I saw pain. I saw people being wronged. I saw human lives being treated like they were garbage. And it disturbed me. It disturbed my conscience. And I, I knew I had this inbuilt sense of right and wrong and that that was wrong. And I wondered where that came from. And I, I understood that, that, you know, kind of Darwinism could provide an evolutionary mechanism whereby we as human beings might have a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong, a sense that we need to protect our species because that would be, you know, the vehicle by which our species or our variant of our species would actually survive because those who had that genetic component that told them to take care of each other, that would be the line that would be most likely to survive. It was the survival of the fittest. I could understand how there could be a, a moral sense in an atheistic evolutionary kind of framework where that could have come from, but I could not account for moral obligation. See, moral sensitivity could be a Darwinian thing, but moral obligation, that we actually are obligated to take care of one another, that could have no basis without something metaphysical, without there being some infinite reference point by which all other points are judged. You know, you can, you can look at a... a a human being, and you can say that human being is unique, that human being has value, that human being is a product of millions of years of evolutionary mechanisms, and that human being is unique, and therefore that human being has, has value, and yet the same thing can be said of cabbage. 
because cabbage, every single head of cabbage is, is a product of millions of years of evolutionary mechanisms and therefore it's of value. But how can you distinguish between one and the other? And I, I came to believe that there had to be a God, a God bigger than the cosmos itself. There had to be. I didn't know who that was. It was an unknown God, but only that unknown God could make sense of the world in which I lived and provide a basis for an actual pursuit of justice. I went off to college at the University of Virginia. You know, that was before the internet when registration meant lining up every incoming student on one side of the domed basketball stadium and marching everyone through 8 billion cubicles until you came out on the other side of the domed basketball stadium as a student actually enrolled at the University of Virginia. And I remember I had looked at a, at a listing of all the campus groups because I was looking for someone who could explain God to me because I, I couldn't ask my parents and I was too ashamed to ask anyone else. And I didn't really know anybody who actually believed any of this. And, and so I had this list of different groups. And I, I saw there was like a Buddhist student group, but I knew I wasn't Buddhist. And there was a Muslim student alliance, but I wasn't Muslim. There was a, a, a Hillel Jewish thing, but I wasn't Jewish. I was, I was look at me. Um, and I saw that there was a Catholic student alliance, but I wasn't Roman Catholic. And there was a Baptist student union, but I wasn't Baptist. And there was a Canterbury Episcopal Student Union, but I wasn't Episcopalian, and there was a Wesleyan Methodist group, but I wasn't a, 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 a Methodist. Um, there was a, a Black Christian Alliance, but I, I had been raised white, and, uh, <laughs> and there was an Asian Christian Alliance, but I wasn't really Asian. Um, I mean, you know, family tree DNA tells me I'm 2% South American Indian, and I don't know how that's possible raised in Appalachia, but, you know, I'm definitely not Asian. And, uh, and then there was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, but I mean, you know. <laughs> and then there was InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, but that sounded athletic to me because... <laughs> and then there was this group called Campus Crusade for Christ that must go kill Muslims in the Middle East. So I didn't know where to go, but I figured of all of them, maybe the Campus Crusade wouldn't be as scary. And so I figured what I'd do is I found on a map where they were going to be set up because all the campus groups were going to have tables set up on the other side of the, the big dome stadium where I was registered. And I found out they were going to be in the first aisle halfway down. And so I, I had a plan. I was going to go down the second aisle of tables away from them and peer over and look at them to see if they looked weird. And unbeknownst to me, they had switched tables with another group. And as I was peering over trying to find them, somebody said, would you like to take a survey? And it was the Campus Crusade table. And uh, I looked at them for a while. They probably weirded them out, but I was trying to figure out if they were weird. And uh, finally I said, sure, and I filled out a bunch of questions. And somebody came to my dorm room and asked, me through an outline of Christianity and asked me if I understood it, and I lied and said yes because I was the type of A student who gets in the University of Virginia who definitely doesn't want to have the wrong answer. And, uh, and they asked me if I'd ever prayed this prayer at the end, and I said yes. That was also a lie because I didn't want to seem poorly accomplished. Um, started going to this Bible study. They had to give me a Bible. I didn't know how to find anything in the Bible. I, you know, they'd tell me, well, look at John 14, 12, and I'd be looking for page 1412. I just didn't know. But uh, somewhere along the line, I remember reading Francis Schaeffer's little book, He Is There and He Is Not Silent. And 
And Dr. Schaefer was asking the exact same questions I was. Is, does anything really have meaning? Is there any real right and wrong? Is there any moral or ethical grounding to the universe? Is there any intelligence within the universe? Does it really matter what we do? Is there life after death? And, and, and in the process, I, I, I think my, my faith was strengthening. And I remember there was this one uh, night in which there was a Bible study called How to Be Sure You're a Christian. And at the end of that study, I was sure I was not a Christian because I knew nothing of the grace of God. And that was the moment in which I first saw that Jesus had to die for me to be saved, that I had this weight of guilt. And unless he picked up that weight and carried it to the cross on my behalf and paid that penalty for me, I had no hope of eternal life. And there for the first time, I remember getting down on my knees in Dobie room 235, uh, up the hill at University of Virginia in the fall of 1990 and, and asking God to forgive my sins and crying out to Jesus and calling on him as my Savior. And over the coming months, I began to grow in my faith because my faith had been directed to an actual object that was good and that was true. It's because God loves arrogant, perfectionistic, opinionated, self-centered architecture students in academia. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your faithful love to us. We give you thanks, Father, for the hope of eternal life, that you actually give an answer in your Son to the human predicament, and that you actually answer the longings of our human heart, the longing for life beyond the grave, the longing to actually know we have significance, the longing to be reconciled to you, the longing to have a life grounded in love and community and hope. And so we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.